online lies cause offline extremism, radicalization, cause um, young women to feel terrible about their bodies and can lead to real serious mental health problems and suicidal ideation. That it can lead to the further spread of COVID and other diseases. And that online harm has a price. Welcome to episode four of season four of Starts at the Top, our podcast about leadership, digital culture and change. I'm Paul Thomas. And I'm Zoe Ammer. Our podcast brings you interviews with leaders from the public, private and third sectors who are using digital to navigate uncertainty and forge a path to the future. In this episode, we talk to Imran Ahmed, founder and chief executive of the Centre for Countering Digital Hate. He tells us what boards and leaders need to know about managing risk on social media, including trolling, and what they can do about it. Such a fascinating um, conversation that we had with Imran. I can't wait to, to get to the interview and to share it with you. But this is the bit where we normally do a bit of preamble. And Zoe, I thought I should point out that this is our 25th uh, episode so wow. if we were I know doesn't time fly uh, but if we were park run this would mean that people could buy their first starts at the top t-shirt with 25 on the back for uh, for enduring and listening to us for 25 episodes yeah focus on the um endurance there and uh if people do want some starts at the top <laughs> merch let us know and we'll see if we can oblige <laughs> We can certainly we can certainly do so. Some T-shirts with our faces on it and 25 on the back are coming your way. So happy 25th anniversary, uh, Zoe. I just thought that would, was worthy of mention. And also in, in sort of anniversary news and, and big reminders that, well, I said in, in this script, I'm not getting any younger, but I think neither of us are getting any younger, quite frankly. But last week, I'm, I'm getting quite big into my um, vinyl reissues at the moment and I think it's a constant reminder how time is shifting on so the week before last was uh, Radiohead's re-release of Kid AM Amnesiac which still to these ears is probably their their defining moment love okay computer but these two are just um, well Kid A in particular is just a, an absolute masterpiece so buying that on vinyl I think that's about 25 years old and then last on Friday I um, I took delivery of Nirvana's Nevermind which uh, is 30 years old Oh my god 30 years old i know and i remember seeing them on on top of the pops and being a bit gobsmacked but yeah 30 i, I do wonder if there's something about the pandemic doing weird things to our perception of time as well it kind of feels like the pandemic certainly for me has gone very quickly and that makes this sense of time speeding up as you get older or feeling even faster yeah Oh, I hope it does slow down. It is frightening, but it's also really interesting because, you know, this this podcast obviously talks about digital and leadership skills. And, you know, I think we're going to go on to talk about something in a minute about, you know, the changing ways that we're working. In the news this week, though, there was some, uh, some news from Portugal about some laws that they are bringing in to really uh, assist um, and to help the home worker in Portugal. Yes, I thought this was really, really interesting. Uh, so we'll include the link in the show notes. But my key three takeaways from what's been happening there uh, is firstly that they're becoming a lot more stringent about how employers, how and when employers can contact their employees. So companies are actually going to face fines for contacting workers outside of working hours. And that reminds me a bit of something we discussed on a previous edition of the podcast about the right to disconnect, which I believe they have in France. So it feels like that position is very consistent with that. 
Also brilliant to see, and I know we'll be talking about this a little bit more in connection with another new story in a moment, that parents have the right to work from home without arranging that with their employer. And I believe they're going to have that in place until their child is, is eight. What I'm finding with the tween years, as they're known, is that it's kind of very helpful to be around then as well for when your kid comes back from school and you may need to take them to an activity and all those sorts of things. But enough about my domestic arrangements. Um, and then the third point, uh, which I thought was really interesting, speaking about mental health and well-being, which I know we've talked about a lot in relation to remote work on this podcast, is that companies are expected to organise in real life meetings every two months to combat loneliness. So I thought it was a really interesting change there. There's something very proactive about the new expectations that are being placed on companies around well-being, but also the division between home and work life uh, and how everyone can reset those for a productive future. The second one, that parents having the right to work from home without arranging with their employer is fantastic. But you can see that it may immediately problems can't you with um if that was employed in in this in this country and even when you think about your own work i'm sure an expectation that you were maybe going to a meeting or you were having a day in the office with a, a fixed group of people and then suddenly two of them turn around and say they're, they're not going to be there but i guess you know ever was such i've had countless times where i've gone into into london to go to a meeting and found that you know the two people that needed to be there have suddenly said they're not going to be or, or, or something like that so I guess it's it's always been the same but I think that idea of, of getting together and really mandating time to to be together in the office is is probably the the, the way forward I just I really struggle with the idea that businesses are going to to enforce people going back into the office because it just it hasn't really fitted with the technology choices that we have today for for many many years since well before the pandemic it's just the pandemic has made it even more um, of a pressing need. So I, I, I think this is brilliant. Me too. It feels like a, a real step forward, doesn't it? And I wonder whether we might see something similar here, but somehow I feel doubtful given the, the mood music from uh, government and some organisations uh, about getting people back to the office. So does that mean that we're moving to Portugal then, Zoe? We can do. I'd love to do a recording of this podcast from beautiful Lisbon. Let's see if we can arrange that. And, and, and in other news as well, I, I know you had a bit of a, a panicked moment last week with um, with technology, of all things. Yes, I, I did. Um, we do have another working from home story, which I think we'll, we'll come to in a moment. But speaking of working from home, I uh, had a slightly scary moment when I was presenting at a conference last week, uh, obviously online. And uh, my internet cut out. Uh, I was just merrily talking away uh, and then suddenly realised that things had frozen and then looked down and realised that things had, had, had just sort of dropped offline completely for a moment. I think my Wi-Fi had just dropped. Fortunately, it came back up really quickly within about a minute. Uh, but it was it did feel slightly hairy. Um, what was great about it was that people were just so incredibly nice and patient. I think that if this had happened a year ago, we were all still slightly getting used to new ways of working then. Uh, but I looked back at the chat on the event platform and people were, were really lovely. They were all saying things like, oh, you know, thanks for trying. And oh, I think it's frozen. And um, they just kind of bore with it. And, and Emily 
Um, but he's my fantastic editor at Third Sector, just stepped in for a few minutes and very heroically ad-libbed before I could get back in to do the final few minutes of the session. But it just did make me think about, firstly, how we've all adapted during this time and we've all got perhaps a bit more confident with dealing with tech mishaps. But also how, if your tech does go down at home, there aren't actually that many plan Bs, are there? So I've got a spare laptop and all that sort of thing. But actually, no one, as far as I know, has um, an internet connection where perhaps you have two. And then if one goes down, it can automatically default to the other. I don't know if you can even even do that. Because my plan B was about, well, actually, I'm just going to have to try and hotspot this on my phone if I can't get back on. So I was really lucky that our Wi-Fi came back up so quickly. Yeah, well, I think it will become more of the norm, won't it, where people have a more reliable phone connection that they can jump onto or that it backs up and moves on to a, another one, particularly as we move into 5G. I mean, I don't know about you, whether you've noticed or whether you've got a 5G-capable phone, but I've um, mine is uh, 5G. And um, when I travel from... So I've travelled into London a couple of times, and actually your area around St Albans and actually Watford going in the other way is where the 5G network starts to, to kick in. And I've been in the centre of London and got incredible speeds, you know, like five, six hundred megabytes. Um, really? Downloads. Oh yeah, my it's, God. It's, it's just it's just quite frightening. And I do wonder whether you'll see that having that as a backup running in the, in the background that you can fall back onto if necessary will be um, will be a problem. But it, it sort of took us to a conversation, didn't it, about those moments with technology where something goes wrong and then the computer starts talking to you in a language that is still so alien that so you can connect with people all over the world through zoom you can get music or videos and films at the touch of a button you can pretty much watch any film you want in the entire world at the touch of a button these days but when my wife got a new laptop from work last week it started shouting at her that the printer driver was needed um, updating <laughs> and we're sort of just sitting there going oh, i mean i i've I, vaguely know what a driver is and I know where to go and find them if I need them but we're looking at it going what's a driver why do we need a driver why is this computer telling us that we need a driver so that that sort of disconnect that we still sort of have to uh to, to worry about when um yeah when computers fail at home it's not always going to be as seamless as it might have been where you're heavily supported in the the office IT environment it's a great point because inevitably even if you do have a great IT team at your fingertips through your organization when you're working remotely inevitably you're having to do a certain amount of self-help with your with IT so it does make you think with all the different windows that pop up when something does go wrong whether those need to be written in more accessible language because currently it, it doesn't really feel like that as you were, were saying I mean we're lucky because we both know what a, a driver is but imagine if you know that was completely new to you if you didn't work in tech you probably you might be thinking well not sure what that is or how to deal with it yeah if it popped up and said buy a new printer you cheapskate it's <laughs> it's it's 15 years old and you need to move on then it might be easier or just you know we recommend that you turn your laptop on and off again and that will probably fix 95 percent of your issues it would be much easier than your driver needs updating so ideally, you would like the equivalent of the uh, Microsoft Office paperclip, uh, but being quite hardline and giving you a lot of tough love. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there was a more um, a more serious story you wanted to touch on as well, Zoe. 
Yeah, so this caused quite a stir when uh, this popped up in my social media feed last week. So this is a BBC News story headline reading women warned home working may harm their careers. Uh, and there's been an intervention from the Bank of England from their uh, economist, Catherine Mann, talking about how women are uh, quite tied to homeworking, um, but also saying that she felt like there were two tracks emerging, people who uh, were going to be in the office and perhaps treated a bit more favourably, and those who are working from home in a bit more of a, a virtual setting. And I have to say this has caused a lot of division when I've been looking at how people have been commenting on this on social media. Um, and I wonder whether it has been deliberately written in that way. I'm, I'm, I'm just not sure. Certainly a lot of the women I know who were posting about this article were saying that they were, were quite disappointed in it. Uh, and I think it's got to be down to more than the woman or whoever's working from home making making that choice and the environment not being receptive to that. This is a team effort, right? Work is a team sport. And it shouldn't just be down to blame women because they're working from home and things aren't progressing in the way that they might like them to. The question should be the other way around, shouldn't it? If you're working from home and you're getting really good results and being really productive, as most people working from home are, and you're not progressing in the organisation, something's wrong with the organisation, not with the woman who's working from home. Yeah, it certainly shines a light on the organisation itself, doesn't it? And makes you think or should make you think, is is this the place that I would want to be or the place that's going to recognise what I am doing and how I am moving uh, my career forwards? 100%. And I have to say, I, I couldn't have achieved half the things that I've, I've done over the last eight, nine years without working from home. It's enabled me to keep my career going, to start a business, to grow a business, to take on team members from all over the UK and beyond wouldn't have been able to do any of that without working from home and offering other people the opportunity to do that too. Yeah and I think as well the normalisation of uh, children coming back and seeing both parents at home, um, both parents taking a role in you know, making sure the lunches are ready for tomorrow, cooking the dinner that evening and taking time out of, of the workday to make sure that those things are, uh, are happening. That as a sort of a normalised way of seeing the world rather than, as I said, seeing my, my, my dad disappear off for the day and not having a clue, really, unless he took me to the office from time to time, what he was doing, why he was doing it and where where he was, you know, kind of knew he was going to work. But they could actually see and sometimes get involved, you know, in our in our work. Yes. Um, but those... Those dividing lines are there for everyone, I think. And it's, uh, yeah, it strikes me as being potentially, again, um, not saying I've seen it too many times, but recently seeing articles, particularly on the BBC with inflammatory headlines that actually cause more of a, a good debate, I guess, but more of a more consternation than they should be. Yes, definitely. And I think you and I both have a certain amount of privilege, don't we, in this situation, because we've both been working from home for a, a really long time. We started this podcast working from home uh, and we're in a situation where we don't have to request working from home from our employer. We basically have to request it from ourselves, which is nice. Uh, but imagine if you're, say, a mum reading that article and you're on maternity leave and you're really wrestling with your working arrangements for when you go back to the office. That article would really spook you. So I, I don't think it's a particularly helpful read, if I'm honest. No, no, definitely not. 
um, it would be good to hear other people's thoughts on that as well if you get in, want to get in touch with us definitely yeah we would really like to hear about your experiences of that and maybe also if you're an employer and you feel that uh, you've done some really exciting things to encourage more people to work from home and that's changed the workforce that you have and you have a more diverse group of people as well we'd, we'd love to hear from you you could even be a future guest so now with our conversation with Imran Ahmed, who's the founder and chief executive of the Centre for Countering Digital Hate, we had a fascinating conversation and we hope you enjoy it. Imran Ahmed is the founding CEO of the Centre for Countering Digital Hate. He is a recognised authority on the social dynamics of social media and what goes wrong in those spaces, such as identity-based hate, misinformation, conspiracy theories and modern extremism. Imran regularly features in the international media as an expert voice and advises politicians in the US, UK, EU and elsewhere on policy and legislation. He was raised in Manchester and holds an MA in Social and Political Sciences from the University of Cambridge. He lives in Washington, DC. Imran, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for coming on Starts at the Top. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Wonderful. Um, so let's kick off by hearing a bit more about what your organisation does. So can you tell everyone a bit about uh, Centre for Countering Digital Hate and, and the story so far? Sure. Well, you know, we were set up uh, five and a bit years ago in the wake of a series of major events happening in British politics. First of all, the, the rise of anti-Semitism on the left and in particular on the Labour Party, but second, the referendum in which we saw a wave of conspiracy theories uh, across the United Kingdom uh, about, for example, the EU trying to encourage Muslims to come into the country to, to replace white people, to, to cause harm. And, and then, of course, the death of the murder of Joe Cox MP, who was killed by someone proselytizing the same kind of white supremacist hatred that we've been seeing flowing online during the campaign. And, you know, within a very short period of time, we saw the rise of Donald Trump, a politician who had, had sought to and successfully harnessed uh, malignant hate movements, but also other kinds of conspiracist movement, melding them together into, into a, a political base. And we thought, well, you know, crumbs, this is not happening on the left or right. This is not about the UK or US, something more fundamental is happening. And as we dug into the ways in which these movements had been energized, we realized that what was happening was more profound. The primary locus of where we share information, create values, establish social mores, attitudes, behaviors, even negotiate the corpus of what we call facts and common sense and knowledge had shifted to online spaces. And those spaces, first of all, work to rules of physics that we didn't understand. So how attention and engagement drive visibility but also that they've been colonized by bad actors. What we started to do was initially work with the platforms to try and, try and see if they could help us to, to stop the whip hand of being given to bad actors and to those spreading hate, misinformation, anti-science. And then we realized that they really weren't playing ball. In fact, we, we realized that they were lying to us, that we'd go to them and say, we've just found this thing what do you think about it? And they'd say, crumbs, we've never seen this before, but we know that they'd been shown it six months earlier. 
but also you know things like our studies uh, failure to act failure to protect where we show that even when you report misinformation and lies and hate to them only in a very small uh, percentage of instances do they take any action we realized it was time to go public and now what the CCDH does is, first of all, identify publicly the harms created online. B, it points the figure directly at the social media companies. And C, we get change. And whilst been one of the best things about what we do is that we've managed to disrupt the work of bad actors, whether it's anti-vaxxers or neo-Nazis or Islamist uh, terrorists. We've also been able to get the platforms, we've been able to sort of encourage politicians to create accountability and transparency of those platforms so we the public are both better informed and better protected. Thank you that's brilliant to hear about the fantastic work that uh, you and your charity are doing and it feels like it's much needed at the moment. Uh, we're recording a, a week after an MP has very tragically been murdered in, in the UK um, and it feels like the, the bad stories about social media and the impact of um, some of the, the sort of online spaces and how people can become radicalised with, within them just seem to be coming every day and also about the harm that, that's being caused on various social media platforms. Uh, so whether it's the whistleblowing story or indeed what happened to footballers over the summer as well, it feels like there's a kind of growing volume of, of stories in this area. And, and do you think that's happening all around the world as well? Or do you think it's just certain countries where it feels like online hate is becoming even more pervasive? Well, we know it's happening all over the world, and we know that it's actually worse still in some of those areas of the world that don't get attention in Western media in the same way. So those countries where, in mean, one of the things that's come out of the recent whistleblower uh, uh, leak of thousands of documents is that the platforms don't actually have any moderators in hundreds of languages. Um, and so what you have is is really, I mean, you know, we, we we think of the situation in the West and in the UK, the US, Europe as being really bad, that hate and misinformation flow almost unabated, uh, in fact, are promoted by the algorithms. Imagine that in countries where there is no moderation, where the, the algorithm works without any mitigating factors whatsoever, and also where Facebook may be the internet. I mean, Myanmar, for example, Facebook is the internet it's the primary means by which people access other bits of information because facebook isn't you know it's free of charge whereas data more generally is expensive and so what you get is a situation where platforms become the entire way through which people create community connect to each other understand what other people think or believe that they other people think and of course those algorithms are run to a logic an implacable logic of amplifying the most extreme the most contentious the most angry the most emotional content that keeps us on the platform makes money for a few billionaires in san francisco but of course in myanmar for example caused a genocide and that's especially shocking, isn't it? Because obviously the story about Myanmar has, has been all over the, the, the news and Facebook's role in that. And of course, Facebook has always professed uh, the, the quality of its, its moderation and how many moderators it has. And I'm sure we've heard that from other social platforms as, as well. So it feels like there's a huge amount more that those platforms could, could be doing in order to keep people safe. 
Well, absolutely. And, and look, it's, it's not, I think we're beyond the point at which they fail to do things which make people safe. In fact, they know that they are making people unsafe, that their wealth comes at the expense of other people's safety. And the, not, not only that, it's, it's sort of a, it's, it's a central energizing credo to those companies. It's actually what Andrew Bosworth, the new chief technology officer of Facebook, once called in a post on the internal forum of Facebook, as he called that his memo, the ugly truth. He said, we grow. Maybe someone dies on our platform. Maybe a young person harms themselves. Maybe a terrorist incident is plotted on our platform, but that's none of our business. We grow. That's all we care about. And he specifically, you know, unveiled the, the the sort of the ugly reality underpinning these companies that pretend they're all about breakout rooms and bean bags everywhere they're not these are actually some of the most rapaciously capitalist organizations on the planet that are absolutely happy to make money at the you know despite the fact that the cost is borne by people and it's paid in blood and despite that they've managed to maintain their images. Now, how have they done that? First of all, by denying that there's a problem. Second, by deflecting it onto other people. It's not us that has anti-Semitism, it's society. And then delaying any action, even when they've accepted both responsibility and the ability to change things. Uh, they delay taking any action. And with Myanmar, they've gone even further. They're now, there's, there's actually uh, subpoenas in for documentation from within Facebook. They're fighting it tooth and nail because they really don't want anyone to know just how bad they know that they've been. So let's talk about some of the upcoming changes in there. And of course, people are beginning to think about the impact of regulation and the online safety bill. And of course, some of the uh, changes that are going to happen in the, the US as well. Are you able perhaps to summarise what some of those key changes are and then what you think the, the impact will be? Well, look, we're at the first wave of regulation now. So what we've had to date is anti-regulation. So in the US, in 1996, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act was passed. And that says that platforms cannot be held liable in any way, civilly or criminally, for content posted by a third party on their platform. It's basically a, a get-out-of-jail-free card. And what you have is sort of, it's like the Ford Pinto uh, moment. Most people listening to this won't remember the Ford Pinto. It was a car in the 70s. Basically, if you touched it on the back, it would explode. And it caused hundreds of people to die in fires. Eventually, Mother Jones magazine found a memo internally in which Ford had calculated it was cheaper for them to pay the lawsuits than it was for them to recall the car. And that, you know, it was basically cheaper to let them burn. With social media companies, the difference is they found it cheaper to let the world burn, to let the capital burn, to let public health burn at the expense of, you know, occasionally taking a PR hit here and there. So there is this movement to create costs for the harm they cause. In economics terms, it's, it's regulation is there to impose, to disincentivize the creation of negative externalities. So that's, you know, problems caused by the economically productive activity that happens within those companies. 
And that is happening right now. So whether it's the United Kingdom, for example, with the online safety bill that imposes a duty of care upon companies to say that we know you've got rules, you've got community standards. We consider those community standards to be our responsibilities as users, not to be hateful, not to be not to spread misinformation deliberately, not to be not to act in a fraudulent way. But they are also reciprocal rights. That if one has a responsibility, one has a reciprocal right, and the right is to an enjoy an environment in which there isn't hate and misinformation that might lead to loss of life. And if you fail to therefore respect that 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 implied right, we'll be able to fine you up to 10% of global revenue for it and potentially put people in jail. And so that's about creating costs for the harms they create. It also demands transparency. So it says, let Ofcom be able to go and have a look at your algorithms, find out why is it exactly that the first thing you see is usually something that makes you go grr rather than you know something that might not make you stay on the platform like a picture of your neighbor's cat now i mean commercially we can see why they they'd want to have a stay on the platform because of course if we keep scrolling down we keep looking at ads but actually the net effect of billions of people seeing grr first actually leads to some pretty ugly outcomes and if that's going to be the way that you want to run your business, sure, but tell us. Like, no, let's let's not hide behind pretense anymore. Let's actually know the rules of engagement on the primary mechanism by which we transmit information and maintain relationships in the modern world, social media. So and that is what the UK is doing. Now, of course, they balked it a little bit in that actually the transparency is you give us your reports on what, what you say is happening on your platform. No one, after the whistleblower's leak of documents, could possibly believe that these companies that have serially covered up that what's happening in those companies would give honest uh, accounts of what's really going on there. So we need to have the ability for any uh, regulator to be able to go in and seize documents and see things in more detail, to be able to check, you know, trust but verify, as a famous US president once said, but then at the same time, they've also balked the bit about um, consequences because they've put off the decision making on criminal liability. You know, even when millions of people may have, may have been harmed by the content, thousands may have died, as has happened with the anti-vax misinformation that flows and abated on their platforms that they claim to be cracking down on, but has without a shadow of a doubt led to people gurgling to death in ICUs, telling their doctors before they die, I thought the vaccine was going to harm me. It's why I didn't take it. It's why I was waiting. And it's too late for them. And for those, you know, for those instances, there is a credible case for criminal prosecution of executives. Of course, the UK, you know, the, the UK government hasn't put that into its current proposals. When I gave evidence to the Online Safety Bill Public Bill Committee a few weeks ago in London, you know, I made that point, and I'm hoping that when the when the government reintroduces that legislation for final reading, for the second reading, in they're saying now by the end of the year, that they will have made that change. In the EU, they've got the Digital Services Act, which tries to do it in a different way. It's more about privacy and data, unsurprisingly for the European Union, which we all know has a thing about that. In Germany, they have the Netz DG, which outlaws certain types of content that they consider to be beyond the pale. For example, anti-Semitic Holocaust denial. In New Zealand and Australia, there's legislation going through. In the US, there are multiple proposals. I think, you know, 
it, the, the thing is that if I if I was to give you where we are with the legislative proposals in the US right now, by the time this comes out, in fact, by tomorrow morning, it would probably be out of date because that in the US legislative process is not driven by government legislation. It's driven by uh, members of Congress coming forward with their legislation. Eventually, that's cobbled together into something which can uh, enjoy majority support and can get through both Congress and the Senate. I and mean, right now there are multiple proposals, but Here's the thing, we've got bipartisan proposals in place now. So for example, you know, Grassley has, uh, is a Republican, has signed up to one of the bills. We've got bills coming from really respected figures who are on the moderate side, who are able to command respect and affection across the house for their independent thought and for their, for their fairness, like Amy Klobuchar, who are coming forward with bills. I think we're at a point now where you've got a glut of bills coming through. You've got Wu, Khan and Kanter, the three horsemen of the apocalypse for social media companies who are now, uh, Biden is having approved or have been approved to be in charge of antitrust in the US. And antitrust is the means by which US law breaks up monopolies. And so there's a real existential threat to Facebook, for example, which owns Facebook, WhatsApp and Instagram. Now, you break up those three companies and for the for the consumer, we, most people don't even realize they're connected. But behind the scenes, believe me, they are. And it's obviously making it means that and Mark Zuckerberg is personally in charge of an enormous proportion of how we how we perceive the world around us. And that is terrifying for someone that appears to have the moral character of a Terminator cyborg. Um, so, uh, and possibly the glassy appearance of a Terminator cyborg as well. So I mean, it, 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 there is a number of proposals going on around the world. And do you think Facebook are trying to preempt that potential breaking up of the company with the announcement this week uh, about them looking to potentially rebrand Facebook as part of this metaverse ambition? So, I mean, the, you know, Facebook is doing everything it can to fight legislation and regulation. They even have full page ads in the New York Times saying it's time for regulating social media companies, you know, bring it on essentially, which is, I, I think is incredibly cocky and I think it's quite witty of them really, is them saying, oh, by the way, you think you're going to regulate us? Come on, give it a go. We're already ready. You know how hard it is to find a lawyer? So I mean, we're based in Washington, D.C., and we're a 501c3. We're a charity. So, you know, when we wanted to get our lawyers to, to, to help us get our status and to make sure that we were, we're fully um, compliant, it's almost impossible in D.C. because every single law firm has a conflict problem because everyone's been bought up by Facebook. If you want to find an accountant, it's almost impossible in this city. A PR firm, a lobbying organization, everything is bought up by, by Facebook. They spent, Facebook and Google, last year in 2020, the election year, 120 million US dollars on lobbying. 120 million dollars. 96% of members of Congress who, who are in judiciary or in antitrust functions uh, sit on those committees. 96% of them take money from a big tech political action committee, a super PAC as they're called. There are unbelievable amounts of money flowing in to the lobbying sector to lobby for these changes to not happen. And of course, what they're trying to do with the metaverse, this ridiculous new thing about apparently we're all going to wear, we're going to put enormous goggles in our faces and walk around and meet each other in virtual spaces, which is to me utterly bizarre. But 
you know, and I think it, and we've all seen it, it looks lame, but I think what it is is actually an attempt to say, we are just one organization. You can't break us up. That'd be like breaking up, you know, it'd be like saying for a mom and pop store, mom, pop, sorry, you've got to run two different businesses. We're just one mom and pop store. And so really, uh, they're saying you can't break us up. But uh, I think you're right that it's, you know, that there is a little bit of um, chicanery, but I think people are seeing through it very quickly. We're heading towards, um, so we're heading towards Ready Player One, basically. Um, that, that's where we're going. We're all going to wear these goggles. We're all going to live in this virtual universe and, and Zuckerberg's going to be the king. My pop culture stopped around the late 90s. So I don't know what Ready Player One is, but if it's a horrible dystopia run by a glassy-eyed overlord, then yes, that's where we're heading. Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. I'd, I'd recommend you go and read it. It's, it's very pulpy, but it's, um, it's you know, probably up your, up your alley in, in that way. But the legislation is one thing, right? So legislation is building and building and building. And, and you're absolutely right. The attention of the world in terms of legislation is, is on these organisations. And there, there are some that, that, like Zoe and I, we have regular conversations about well, where, do, where does this end? What, what's, the, um, what's the end game of these organisations? But you're constantly up against the court of public opinion. And as you've rightly identified, the, the three main Facebook channels are, are absolutely... Um, all pervasive in in public consciousness you know everyone at our school runs uh the pickup channel is is on whatsapp the schools have instagram channels the the, the facebook pages may be uh getting a bit dusty but those two platforms in particular are just running a lot of our day-to-day -day lives so i don't know where to even start is there a sense that any of these platforms at all are going to um, take any kind of a moral stance with some of this and make a change themselves towards being better without the legislation? Or are we just in this mire? Well, no, I, I think that we are in a place right now where for the past few years, we have been overwhelmed by the technical aspects of change. And we kind of bought the idea that it was too complex to understand. And I think that the Centre for Countering Digital Hate, which, you know, we've only been public for two years now um, as an organisation. And earlier this year, President Biden cited our research on the disinformation dozen, how 12 people produce two thirds of the disinformation about vaccines and how social media platforms give them free reign. And he cited that when he said Facebook are killers. He said they're killing people because that misinformation is causing people to put themselves at harm of COVID. And, you know, I think one of the things that, that we, we observed some time ago is that there is a space for moral campaigning. Like, don't get mired in trying to rewrite the business model of these organizations. Let's make the case that actually online lies cause offline extremism, radicalization, cause um, young women to feel terrible about their bodies and can lead to real serious mental health problems and suicidal ideation, that it can lead to the further spread of COVID and other diseases. And that online harm has a price. And I think being able to enunciate that clearly and then point the finger at individuals and say, if you're worth $100 billion by monetizing this platform that is causing so much harm, Mr. Zuckerberg, he's worth a hundred billion dollars. Imagine that. And you know, and you're still hungry for another hundred billion dollars. Well, before we let you do that, 
we're going to ask that you at least reduce the, you know, put some serious investment into reducing the harms that are created as a byproduct of your immense wealth gathering. And I think that when you put it in, in simple moral terms, there's a reason why a small group from London originally of, and we're only 14 staff now, we were six at the point at which President Biden was citing our research, that there's a reason why we've been able to do that. Because I think there's been a serial failure to understand that this is just old-fashioned moral problems. This is a business that is too greedy. These are venal sins and not technical problems. So yeah, I got a lot of hope. I mean, and, and I can see other people you know, coming and, and using the same approach now. I, I work with colleagues from the ADL, from Colour of Change, from other spaces, and we're all saying the same thing now, which is you're causing harm to the people that we care about. You know, black people, Jewish people, communities all around the, the, the world. The biggest, um, the biggest sort of public challenge, I guess, to this over the course of the, the last year has been, or one of them at least, was the um, the Premier League, at least in, in the UK, having a four day blackout of all social media channels. That obviously doesn't go far enough. But where do you think, um, where do you think, or what, what about these high profile boycotts? Can they make a difference? Should they make a difference? And and you know, is there um is there a sense that it takes something bigger than the Premier League or or an organisation like that? Does it take a, a sort of a concerted effort, a movement, I guess, amongst us as individuals to to also show our, our sort of displeasure at, at this? I, I mean, I, I think it does. And the question is, what's the political constituency for change? And so, if it's just Premiership footballers, well, how can they engage their constituencies, the people that they influence, to? to campaign for change as well? And how can they make the call to action really clear? So there are a number of things as well that you can do to mitigate and to reduce the, the prevalence of hatred on social media platforms. One of the things that I've been arguing with, with the Premier League, the FA, with clubs for some time are real consequences for digital hate. If someone online is calling a player the n-word and if if they're if they're a recognition that i tell you most of the time they're identifiable human beings most of the time we and we we as sport go and work out which club they support by looking at their past tweets and and the things they've said publicly that make it clear they're a season ticket holder at x football club ban them if i went to old trafford which is where i grew up uh, i went to the united stadium and i started shouting the n-word from my seat there'd be a steward on me, I'd be out of the stadium, I'd be banned for life. Why am I allowed to do that online? So treating digital spaces as serious places where, where, where people can be harmed, I think is the first thing that they could do. And so it's about, I, I, I've, you know, funny enough, I've just gotten off a phone call with some uh, colleagues from the football industry. And I've just been saying like, stop, stop treating it as a slogan, the idea that Black Lives Matter and that abuse, that there's no room for hatred, turn it into a principle. If it's a principle, then you would you would act in a very different way, the way that you're acting right now. And I think that that's, you know, part of it is if it's a principle, well, then what flows from that? First of all, if there's no room for hatred, that means there's no room in my stadium for hatred. It means that if a social media company wants to do a deal with us, but they're still spreading hatred as well, we're going to say, before you can even think about commercializing and monetizing the attention that's, dr that's driven by football players, 
first of all, you need to clean your platform up. And we're not doing the deal full stop until that happens. Yeah. And being a football fan myself and a, and a fan of a, a club that wears a Visit Rwanda badge on the side, there's very little um, to, to tell me that they have the moral interests of their fans at heart when they go in to, to make all these deals. So I, I hope that they they take that. So sort of changing tacking a bit and sort of coming towards our audience. So what do other what do sort of boards and leaders need to know about the risk of social media? And is there anything that they can do um, in taking an approach? For example, last week when or, or two weeks ago when Facebook went down for for hours, um, Zoe's written on this. Many people have written on this. The impact of that on charities and ask the question: What can charities do, or what sort of stance can they take towards Facebook now? But recognizing there's an over reliance, or that the charity has a reliance on those platforms to 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 fundraise and to make money and to be seen. What can leaders do about this? What would be your advice? I think I alluded to it very early on when I said there are different rules of physics to social media platforms than there are to the real world. And an understanding at a simple level as to what communication means on social media. So, you know, for example, what it means when you receive a notification that someone's being abusive towards your brand, um, why it is that someone would use abuse, and the way in which engagement drives visibility. So, you know, we wrote a report, our first ever public report was Don't Feed the Trolls, and it was based on, based on a mathematical analysis of the combination of user behavior and the, the, the algorithms, the, the platform's logic. So it said, if someone's abusive to you, towards you racially, your instinct is to react. But if you react to it, what you actually do is rebroadcast it to millions of people. If you're, especially if you're, you know, if you're a charity with a large following, you, know, you rebroadcast it to lots of people. How do we measure the effectiveness of any piece of communication on social media through the most regressive mechanisms, retweets and shares, which is utterly meaningless, first of all, because a retweet for me is worth nothing. And, you know, we, we work a lot with Hollywood celebrities, a retweet from Selena Gomez, something gets seen by 10 million people. I, I, I can see my direct numbers. A retweet from me, you might get seen by five. So, you know, the, the regressive understanding that we have of it, understand the mathematics of those platforms and the ways in which, for example, the overreactions I have seen by executives to one bit of abuse online, you know, still you hear people saying, people are saying on Twitter, you know, just because the Daily Mail writes ridiculous articles, even The Guardian, even the BBC, saying people on social media are saying, and they pick up three tweets and say, this is what social media is saying. That's not what social media is saying. So we were talking about boards and leaders and what else they need to know about how they understand risk, manage risk on social platforms. Because it does feel like there's a bit of a gap in the understanding between, say, the team who are running social, the digital team, and then whether the board and the leadership team really get what's going on at grassroots level. So, I mean, you know, in a past life, I was a management consultant. And one of the things I used to encourage people to do was go and listen to salespeople. And I'd say, if you want to know about objection handling, if you want to know what people really think of your brand, your product, go and speak to the front line, the people that really, really touch the public and see them on a regular basis. I think quite often what you get is top-down instructions on what to do on social media and what it means that there's you know there's there's a tweet here or a tweet there. I think about creating an organisation that drives understanding and information from 
those people who are most in contact with the public through social media back up to executives. So a learning process and an organization that's able to, you know, I think if you can get that, that flow right, what you actually end up doing is giving executives an enormous amount of understanding about where sentiment is, but, you know, filtered through people that actually get it a lot, lot better than executives do most of the time. And over time, what you do is you upskill the entire organization and understanding how it is, you know, you get more of that nuanced feeling, which you get over experience and time about what it means now for our brands to be to be uh, inserted into a into a, a a communications milieu, which is very, very different to anything we've experienced before. And, you know, it, it also helps us to understand well, what matters and what doesn't. When is a moment a crisis? When is it just, you know, a flash in the pan? And we're going to have to, as organizations, get more used to that. Because I look at, for example, how people reacted to abuse around COVID. And I see some of the world's biggest charities having made atrocious mistakes in how they've managed their reputations in that crisis, which then you see some, you know, you see individual scientists and some very smart people who've realized that when there's a, when there's when there's very organized troll activity, for example, switch to broadcast mode and suck it up. You know, suck up the fact that like 50 people on social media, if they work together in really, really deep uh, in deep coalition. So this is how it works. 50 people, they each tweet one time. They each retweet each other saying this or you know a, a thumbs up emoticon and they each like each other's posts. That's 50 times 50 times two notifications to the target, 5,000. Now you get 5,000 notifications going into an executive at a charity and they see what their feed looks like. They think that means 500,000 people feel it. And actually it's divide by 100, not times by 100. And so, you know, the, the reality is that once you start to understand the way in which these things happen, that someone's trying to make something happen, trying to hijack your brand, you can be much more confident in navigating what are more complex and more complex eddies and also environments that give the whip hand to bad actors. So there's also things we can learn from how bad actors organize. And I, I've been encouraging pro-social organizations to build their own ninjas who understand social media and who are able to reinforce each other. We can do that both you know, in terms of individuals who work for the organizations and support the organizations, but then between organizations as well. How do we leverage the fact that we actually are more popular? We're bigger and cooler than all of them. I remember going back years ago, having these conversations where, you know, you'd have a conversation with the leadership team and say, well, it's great that you've got this, this carefully created corporate brand that's really in the hands of the people running your social media channels. And that's just got stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger to the point where, um, you know, that I think it's a, a real, real shift in the power dynamic. So if you're the CEO or the you know, senior director, trustee of a charity, and you're getting trolled regularly. And obviously, we're waiting still for this legislation to be scrutinised and to, to come into force and all of that. Um, do you feel that we basically have to, to, to live with this in, in the meantime? It's just kind of the, the cost of having a, a digital presence well, I think it's not the cost, it's, it's just the reality of having a digital presence. Like the, the, the rules of physics aren't set by it. So there are multiple things happening right now. First of all, there are organizations like CCDH, which is set up to try and disrupt bad actors. There is increasing pressure to stop giving the whip hand to bad actors. 
there are some platforms which are trying to make changes to make it less impactful on victims to you know to, to, to make it less disproportionate the impact on victims of bad actor activity and um, but i think there's there's also a realism that has to go with it that brand in the modern sense isn't actually in you know it isn't a logo it isn't a slogan it isn't it uh, we've our brands are becoming less and less inflexible less and less you know atomized and 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 um singular over time like we've become much more comfortable with you know a revolution in marketing that's been going on over decades now about more complex brands that that interact in 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 more complex environments in which lots and lots of opinions can be can be shared in which saturday night live for example can crush a brand of an organization now imagine that on social media and imagine the inability to uh to think hard about to to to, to operate in these environments and i I think that we're just having to get used to a new way of understanding and appreciating what brand is. Your brand is very much, you know, it's much more visible to you what people think of your brand, but it also means that you have to go back to what brand originally was, which is values. Like, you know, brand is not something that you present to the outside world. It's how you live, breathe and perform. It's like it shines through beyond just the words that you put to it. And that's what the RNLI do so well, don't they? When they get get stuck in these horrible crisis situations, when they get trolled, they lead with their values and they're really robust about what they stand for. You know, we we we, we did something with the US Marines a while back and the Marines decided that when there were, you know, there's announcements going out about women Marines and they were, they were get the, initially they were getting trolled really badly. So then they just said, switch off comments. And it really, really spoke to the Marine Corps values to me, which is that the Marine Corps says, don't get in a fight, you don't have to, but if you do, win it. And so the first instinct is, don't get into a fight, just switch off the comments. I thought that was wonderfully confident of them. And then if someone says, you switched off comments, you don't want to hear what you said, I don't care. So that's exactly it. I literally don't care what you think about women Marines, because they're Marines, and we protect our own. And I loved that. Paul, is there anything you want to ask before we wrap up? Do you know what? I was just thinking that's just a, such a positive. Um, we've been through the mile. We've been through a lot of in, in this conversation. It's just nice to end on a real sort of positive. We haven't sworn at all, but I really want to say, you know, it's the FU ending, isn't it? Um, more brands should be um, brave enough. Are there any other examples of, of you know, where you've seen brands that have you know, enough's enough and, and taken that stance in that way? I, I, you know, I think increasingly people do. And I think I see more and more brands getting to an aware. Here's the thing, like, you know, when brands get it, when you don't see them reacting to mm. nonsense, when you see them being able to, and it, I, I mean, I deal a lot with physicians. So Peter Hotez, who's a really, really well-known vaccinologist and pediatrician in the US, who does enormous amounts of good work uh, in Texas, uh, and is a major contributor to CNN and other channels on COVID and the vaccine. And he and I have been through this together. Uh, you know, we're, 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 we're quite close now. And um, I've seen the way that he's learned how to deal with these things. And I think over time, a lot of people are learning that actually when you're not being mentioned, that's because you've got your strategy right. But yeah, I, I think that, you know, we're moving to a strategic revolution after people trying to play tactics on uh, social media and trying to be very cute and clever. And I think to be cute and clever, you, you know, the US Marine Corps are probably my favorite example of how you do that.
it's encouraging to know that if I'm not getting mentioned, then my, my strategy is, is correct, because that's probably what's happening to me now. Uh, now I've sort of given up the ghost a little bit on Twitter. It's a really good conversation. Thank you very much for, for spending time with us. Hey, that was great. Thank you so much, Imran. That was brilliant. And I know that our listeners will get a lot from this conversation. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you to Imran for joining us. Uh, Zoe, any takeaways for you from that wonderful conversation? Well, it was great to hear someone being so robust about how you mm-hmm. deal with trolls. I thought that his discussion of the upcoming legislation was was really helpful uh, and also a great primer for the context on social media and how that's really changed over the last few years. Yeah, and also um, sort of in, I think we talked to him in the same week as uh, Facebook was making its change to Meta um, and increasing its overall influence on on the web. So for me personally, I think it's good to know that people like Imran are out there, uh, uh, out there fighting the good fight. And I will certainly be keeping much more, much more of an eye on, on the work of uh, the Centre for Countering Digital Hate. So thank you for listening to episode four of season four. We'll be back next week with another episode, which we think will probably be Joy Foster from Tech Pixies, who we spoke to last week in a wide ranging conversation about digital leadership and sport, uh, surprisingly. Building your ambition to really make this a uh, sport podcast. Oh, it's a great conversation. So we hope you enjoy that. Uh, as usual, please send us your feedback. We'd love to hear about anything that you feel that you will do differently after hearing from any of our speakers from the series. You can share your plans, ideas or questions with us on Twitter. We're at, at starts at the top one or you can email us on starts at the top podcast at gmail.com. And we'll speak to you again next week. Thank you. Speak to you next week. Bye.